Hi, I'm Lori B, and I'm an alcoholic. Lori, not a little bit. By the grace of God, I've been clean and sober since January 6th of 1987, and for that, I'm truly grateful and very old. <laughs> yeah. So um, I can't see very well, so I stole the clock just momentarily. I will put it back afterwards um, and bring my watch. But uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And in that, I hope to transmit God, because God is truly the reason I'm here. I really can't even explain it besides telling you what happened. Um, I'm from New York. I grew up in an alcoholic family. My dad's a crazy, angry alcoholic. I have um, two sisters, one older than me, one younger than me, and a mom that took a lot of pills to shut out my dad. And from the time I was really small, I believed in God. I believed I'd done something in a past life, like maybe I was a witch or something. And that's why I was born into this family to pay my sins back. It was the only thing I could come up with. Um, my dad was physically abusive on me, sexually abusive on my older sister. And my little sister hit out a lot. And uh, I failed to bond to humans as a child. I only bonded to my pug. I had a little dog. And that was it for me. Uh, since I got sober, a therapist once asked me like, when did you become suicidal? I don't remember becoming suicidal. I came out the gate like that. I never wanted to be here. I didn't connect to humans. Um, when I couldn't trust the big humans in my house, I knew I couldn't trust any humans. So that's kind of how I rolled. And uh, my dad was an airline pilot, which should make you feel safe if you're traveling, right? Um, and I thought as a kid, I thought, what's he gonna hit, like a cloud? Like I didn't realize there was other planes up there until I watched a couple of shows about it. Then I grew up and I'm like, holy crap, there's a lot of stuff up there. Um, and the takeoff landing was pretty intense. But besides that, because I used to sometimes sit in the jump seat with them. But um, I don't know, my, we grew up in a nice home. We had nice things, but behind the living, but behind the doors, it was like a living hell um, that I didn't want to endure for another day. So um, I used to, you know, throw myself down flights of stairs, cut my wrists a lot, all kinds of crazy things. My first act of violence was in nursery school. I pushed a kid down a flight of stairs and I was just so angry all the time that anyone smaller than my dad was like prime. And I was always fighting, always in trouble. I started hitchhiking at a young age, stealing at a young age, smoking at a young age. My first drink was, was Grape Concord Manischewitz wine because I'm a Jew. I don't know when it happened, but probably really, really young um, because that's what we did. We went to temple and everybody drank. Um, so by the time I was 13, my mom had enough of my dad and she left us in New York and came here to California with a plan to rescue us. So the plan was um, that she would get out here, get a job, save some money and send for us. And truthfully, when my mom left, I didn't know if she was coming back. And I was, I didn't feel anything about it other than I'm glad somebody got out of this crazy house, you know, and that was it. And after she left, things really started to escalate because my dad had an inability to take care of us by himself. When he went away on airline trips, she would be taking care of us. And now sometimes he'd leave a babysitter and sometimes he'd just leave us alone. So this one night he went out on a trip and um, he was usually gone for like two or three days and we were alone. And it was the seventies, like there was a lot of latchkey kids. It wasn't really abused back then as far as I know, but that's why we had a term for it, right? So my dad left and the next night I had my friend Jeanette spend the night and I figured she'd spend the night. In the morning we were gonna hitchhike to McDonald's, hang out, you know, smoke, eat French fries, you know how kids do still today at McDonald's. I don't know what that's about, but. Um, so she spent the night and in the morning we started getting ready to go and we were looking for the blow dryers and we, which are usually under the cabinet and we couldn't find them anywhere in the house. And we were looking all over and all of a sudden I heard the garage door open and at the age of 13, I'm like a skilled war veteran in regards to where my dad is in the house at all times. 
because of his abuse, right? I didn't do that. I did that subconsciously, right? I could tell by the pace of his footstep if, if he's angry and I need to get out, right? And um, I hear him come in through the bottom and I'm like, oh shoot, my dad's here. And she said, should I leave? And I'm like, no, go in the bedroom. I start straightening up the bathroom and I'm tracking him. I hear him come down the hall, go into his room, set his pilot cap down because he kept his money in it. So I had to put the change. And I was just like, always, oh, um, where's my dad at? What's he up to? And I'm in the bathroom with the door almost closed. And all of a sudden he comes in and he busts through the door with like a, the blow dryer in his hand. My dad used to do some crazy stuff. So he had actually hid the blow dryers and he started beating me. And I was stuck in between like the toilet and the wall trying to get cover. And he started hitting the wall hard and plaster started flying out. And my friend came from somewhere else in the house and rushed to the door. And when she got to the door, she made a noise and she looked at him and he looked at her and it was an equally resonant shock for two completely different reasons. She was like, holy shit, Lori's getting beat up. And he was like, oh my God, someone sees what I'm really like because he was pretty well respected, right? So she went in the kitchen and called her mom and he went in the bedroom and closed his door, probably panicking. And she said, uh, Lori needs help. So our parents came and got me. We went back over to her parents' house and they started talking to me about, you know, Jeanette told us what happened, um, blah, blah, blah. And then after a while, my dad called up over there and he's like, you know, Lori's crazy. She's been to see psychiatrists, psychologists. She's got uh, scars on her wrist from trying to kill herself. She's taking meds right now for schizophrenia. She's been kicked out of school a couple of times. All that's true, but it had nothing to do with what just happened at the house. But um, they were like, wow, this is way more than we thought it was. So he's going to come and get you and you're going to have to, you know, it's a lot for us to deal with. We didn't know all this was going on. So he came and got me and took me back to the house and really didn't talk on the way home. And then when we got to the front door, he held it open kind of politely for me, which surprised me because my dad was never polite to me. And I thought maybe he was scared. But when I walked through the door, his fist hit me. He was just trying to get me still like in front of him so hard that I hit the ground. Um, and I think I got enough nerve just from hearing those parents talk to get out. So I ran around the table and I got out and I hid into the bush in the bushes until he stopped looking for me. And then when he went back in the house, I hitchhiked over to my friend Aaron's house and Aaron was like a latchkey kid always. She had a mom, no dad, um, and a brother that smoked a lot of weed. So I knew I could crash there. So I hitchhiked over to Aaron's house and I called home when I got there and he answered the phone and I said, I'm at Aaron's and I'm not coming home. And I hung up like loud. And you're thinking like, why did you just tell him where we're at? Like you went through all that. But at the age of 13, I was like in the mode, but actually it was a statement. I felt, I felt big at, at 13. I'd been through a lot of life at 13. You know, it was like a statement, like I am not coming home. Boom. And I hang up the phone and um, it was the middle of the night at Aaron's house and the phone rang and it was an aunt of mine. And she said, the police are at the house. We know you have your dad's gun and we're coming to get you. And I didn't have my dad's gun. My dad had a gun that he carried all the time. Uh, when he went to work, when he was at home, it was under his pillow, which scared me because my mom was usually right next to him. Um, when he was at, around the house, it was hanging on his closet door. And when my mom moved out of the house, their walk-in closet had changed to a closet filled with Smirnoffs. Um, and that gun was always there if it wasn't with him. So I knew the gun they were talking about, but I didn't have it. So my aunt came and got me, took me back to the house. And my dad was sitting at a table with a bunch of police officers. My dad was giving me a look like a look that you know if you have a dad like mine the look, the look is if you talk right now while these guys are here we're going to be talking more than talking after they leave right so um i didn't say anything about what happened the night before only that i don't have the gun i just kept on repeating i know the gun i don't have the gun so finally they sent me to sleep and then um the police left i saw the police leave um Next morning, I was woken up by a different police officer, told me to get dressed and put me in a car and we started to drive. And I'm in the backseat of this police car. I have no idea if it's like a rescue from Jeanette's parents or what. 
And uh, when we pull up the freeway and I see the dark gates of Central Islip Mental Institution for the criminally insane, we all knew what it was. Um, and they start checking me in at the gates. I realized, oh my God, Laura, you should have told someone. Like you should have told someone yesterday what happened because to say something now about what happened it just doesn't, it sounds like a lie, right? So um, I, they, they admit me to Central Islip, which is not a kid's place. It was Pilgrim State and Kings Park is what they wrote. And Central Islip is what they wrote when flew over the cuckoo's nest after. And they stopped doing lobotomies, but they were still doing shock treatments and stuff. So they tied me to a bed in a straitjacket and they drugged me. And for me, it was the opposite of a spiritual awakening. It was a spiritual deadening that would rule my life for the next 10 years. Because before I thought God hated me, now I was clear God hated me, right? after going through this family stuff and now being put in this crazy ward. And um, my mom kept on calling to see how we were, we were doing. And my dad and sister kept on saying we were outside playing. And um, my older sister, the one that was being abused by my dad as well. And um, finally, my mom realized she hadn't talked to me and she hired a guy who found out a kid was in Central Islip and got me out. But she didn't have enough money to get me out here to California. I mean, yeah, so she... I moved to a group home in Stony Brook, New York, and that was where I met people like me the first time in my life, other little kids that had been abandoned and abused. And for the first time in my life, I bonded to someone, right? I love these kids. They were like, you guys, except for they were smaller, they weren't sober yet, and they learned, they taught me to steal better, right? So before I was like stealing at the five and dime, and now I was mugging old people down by the train station, which makes me feel really bad to say now, but... Um, at the time, it was all we could handle was like an old lady or two, um, grab a purse and run. And I started doing acid and different kinds of drugs and life was pretty good, right? And my mom came to get me at some point and it was like, no, I don't want to leave here, but I did. And I moved to Newport Beach, California and Newport Beach Harbor High School was not a fit for me. Like I was dressing like a boy, acting like a boy. I had steel toes in my boots in case I got in a fight. You know what I mean? There was no fight pit at Newport Harbor High School. It was like a regular like something you'd see on TV. So I didn't go to class. I went to like, um, I went to the smoke pit where I saw other people like me and I started hanging out with some chicks and we got bored at the smoke pit. So we started breaking into houses during the day and taking cigarettes, alcohol and money so we could smoke and um, drink and celebrate with the money by ordering a pizza. Like we burglarized another house. Yay. So um, at some point, one of the kids said, you know, we should actually take jewelry. I don't know. She had seen it on TV. If you're going to break in, you should take jewelry. So we started taking jewelry. I came home from school one day and there were two police officers dressed in plain clothes, like regular people with my mom. And um, I guess my mom had went into my drawer to do my laundry and put some socks in my drawer and she found a shiz load of jewelry. So she took it to the jewelry store and tried to get it appraised and she almost got arrested. So uh, they were asking me about $92,000 in burglaries. And I'm like, I don't know anything about any burglaries. And I could feel my, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but like when your heart's going, ching, ching, like you almost feel like your shirt's moving, but I'm like, I don't know anything about any burglaries. And they're like, really, Lori? And the guy said, cause we've been here for a while before you got home. We found this note in your room and he unfolds it all happy. And it says, dear Kim, you want to do some burglaries today? Love Lori with a little card. Of so I'm, like, okay. I'm done. Okay. So um, the rest of my years was in juvenile hall and group homes. And um, by the way, I was speaking at the Newport club on 32nd, um, probably five years ago and Kim was in the audience and um, she's like, like she didn't know it was the note that got us all busted. Right. It's like, oh, yeah, don't write stuff down. So um, I ended up being in juvenile hall and group homes for the rest of my teenage years. And um, by 16, I was in a group home in Costa Mesa and they put me in like continuation school. I'd lost a lot of credits while I was missing school um, at Newport Harbor high school. So I went to continuation school and that's where I was introduced to um, shooting up. And at the age of 16, when someone approached me like with a needle 
I was like, great. If it kills me, fine. If it doesn't, I might like it. So, you know, I want to die anyway. So I started shooting up Coke and cannabinol on a regular basis. And by the time I was 18 and leaving the foster care system, I thought when I get off probation and they stop arresting me, I'm just going to go back to New York where people just use social acid and mescaline and I'm going to clean up my life. Right. So, um, I did go back to New York. I didn't know anyone that shot up at the time. So I drank a lot of Jack Daniels and played a lot of pool. And um, I was seeing some guy and, you know, I have this failure to bond ever since I was really little. I don't get attached to people because thinking someone's always going to be there is like a setup for failure. Right. So um, I'm seeing some guy and one day I look down, there's a bump on my stomach and I'm like, oh my God, there was never a bump on my stomach. And I'm like, oh my God, you're pregnant. Like you could have your own family. Like you could have a baby. You could start all over again. I start thinking about it. And then I think the guy's going to find out I'm a junkie. He's going to take my baby away. So I left New York and came to California pregnant. My mom wouldn't have me for, she's like, hell no, you're not pregnant. So I moved in with some anti-abortionist lady taking care of like our five kids. And um, I was sober, you know, just beer for the wheat and a little bit of weed, right? Um, And doing pregnancy. And one of my friends found out where I was staying and dropped over with a, bindle and a needle and um without the program i lose the ability to make a choice especially about the people i love so i start um shooting up um pregnant i'm six months pregnant and i'm shooting up and um, my baby goes hard in my stomach and i freak out i'm calling the hospital and i remember there was this old lady down by the beach that was pregnant they used to deal cocaine and she told me that the baby's in a different part of your system because she was pregnant while using cocaine and then my baby started to move again and um I thought she's right. So I continued to shoot up through my whole pregnancy, gave birth to my daughter at Fountain Valley Hospital and um, they didn't check me or her. And then they sent me out. By that time, the lady knew I was a junkie. So I started living in hotels and motels on Harbor Boulevard. Um, Yeah. And I had a lot of friends. Um, I hung out with guys that did time in prison and bikers. And my little sister and my older sister were both drug addicts. My little sister was like a punk rocker. My older sister was a DJ at a place called Deja Vu on Newport Boulevard. Um, and she hung out with a lot of rich guys, right? So we were all different. And um, I had a problem with my little sister, ever, my older sister, ever since I was really young, um, because she helped my dad hide the gun and she helped my dad keep me from my mom, right? So we didn't get along real good. But um, my friends did a lot of heroin and I didn't like heroin because it made me throw up and act too nice. And I thought, you know, I can't be that metal, mellow. But after a while of doing cocaine and having a baby and never having enough money for her, diapers or her food or anything. I thought I should do heroin to get off the Coke and save some money. So I started doing heroin as a detox savings plan to get off the Coke, save a little bit of money. Right. And, um, like my sister, my older sister calls me one day and she said, Lori, um, I was supposed to do a job tonight and I can't do it. And it was for these rich guys. And I asked them if they take my sister and they said, yes. And so if you want to meet some really nice guys and make a shitload of money, Um, I can hook you in with these guys. And it's like, um, yeah, money. I need money. I definitely need money. So I said, what do I got to do? She said, I'll send you a cab and it'll take you to my friend's house. So this cab came and picked me up. And by this time I'm starting to get like heroin sick, you know, because I've been using heroin. So this cab picks me up, takes me to this um, San Clemente Inn resort. I meet the, the hotel restaurant owner. He gives me keys to a brand new Mercedes. And he says, go meet my friends out at the golf course. And, um, 
they're really nice guys. They're all doctors. And then meet me at the house and we'll smoke some opium and we'll eat some lobster and steak. And then I'll send you home on the, in the cab. So I said, sounds great. And I went to this little room and I waited and these three men came in one by one and they talked to me about prostitution and AIDS. I guess they thought I was a prostitute. And I was like, yeah, no. And um, I didn't say anything, but I listened. And then after they, they didn't want to do anything with me. And then after all the three doctors left, they left money on the table and it was like $800. And I'm, sh- I'm like, shoot, for $800, I would have done something. I'm no prostitute, but $800 is like two months worth of welfare checks. So the next day um, I went back to my room and I signed up to be a prostitute. Like I looked in the yellow pages in the drawer in the hotel room. And I remember opening the drawer because it was paramount for me. It was like the Bible or the yellow pages, like you pray about it or you're going to go for it. And of course, I went straight for the yellow pages. Prostitution's not in there, but I found some escort thing and I signed up. And the next thing I know, I'm um, getting a call. It was two days before Christmas to go to this house in Laguna Niguel. Um, There's a man that called in for me, right? I don't have a car. So I called my sister at my mom's house and I'm like, get mom's car, pick me up, take me to this place. I'll make some money and I'll give you half of it. So she takes me um, to this street in Laguna Niguel. And it was like a really, it's Christmas time. So there's lights at every house, except for the one house I'm about to go into. And um, it's dark. And I said, Allison, if I, if I don't come out of this house in a reasonable amount of time, you better call someone, not mom, not the police, just call somebody. Okay. So she agrees. And I go up to the door and it's um, this dark, entryway and I knock and I hear this big whooshing sound and the door flies open and there's this old guy in a wheelchair with like Albert Einstein crazy looking hair and he's like get in the house and um I go in the house and let's just say within two minutes maybe five he could tell I'm so rigid and unsexual he does wrong choice like not a prostitute like I failed prostitution he like gave me money and threw me out of the house um but the funny thing is um that guy kept on calling for me, but not to have sex with me, just to like take me to the movies or, you know, just try and talk to me about bettering my life. Right. So um, about three weeks later, I'm so heroin sick that I saw girls out on the street and I started working the streets um, of Harbor Boulevard. And that was the beginning, the end of um, my using, although it was several years and all of the light sucked up into darkness. My mom took my kid away. And um, I, re- I remember like um, the last couple of days on the street at Thanksgiving time and 1986, some man pulled a knife on me. Um, he was going to rape me, obviously, you know, he was like, he pulled a huge knife on me. And I think it was Thanksgiving. And I looked at him and I said, you want to rape me? I'm not going to fight. Go ahead, rape me. You know how many times I've been freaking raped? Go. And he looked at me and he left. He was like, that's not the response he wanted, I guess. Right. Um, he left. And I, I, I had a peek into my soul on that day about what it, it scared a rapist. You know what I mean? How much I didn't care about myself. So it was January 5th, 1987. And I was at Fifth and Harbor where I normally work the streets and this white car pulled up and I got into the back seat and there were two guys on the front in the front and they jumped on the freeway really fast. And I knew at that point in my life, you should never get on the freeway, ever get on the freeway. I wrote a book about my life, but I don't talk about it much. The stuff that happened on the street, but getting on the freeway was bad. So I looked at the guy in the rear view mirror. Um, I could see his eyes, the driver, and he looked like he was on meth or something trying to get somewhere really fast. And the other guy was completely zoned out. So I jumped out of the back seat and in the front to try and grab the wheel to make them crash. And the back, the guy on the right side was watching me and banged me in the head and I blacked out. And I woke up in a clearing in the woods somewhere, maybe Tribuco Canyon. I don't know what Canyon it was. It was a Canyon. And I woke up in a clearing in the woods somewhere and um, there was woods all around us and we were on some dirt 
and they got out of the front seat and into the back and the driver had a gun. And after hours of being raped and beaten in the back seat of that car, I got that um, a prostitute had killed a gang member and the gang members were supposed to go out and find a prostitute and rape her all night and kill her in the morning. And um, after hours of being beaten and raped, I thought, you know what, Laurie, they don't realize who they have here. They've got a gun. You want to die. Oh, my God. And um, 10 minutes. Okay. Don't I have to find till or no? Do I? Because I'm watching this thing. Okay. Um, the clock. Anyway. So, um, yeah. So, so um, I start screaming, kill me at the top of my lungs, thinking they're going to pull the trigger and kill me. Um, but I screamed so loud that they got scared and left me for dead. And thank God for the guy who saw something weird in the bushes and stopped. Because the next thing I know, I'm being picked up by this really big man and he's tugging at me. And I looked down and I was unconscious until he started pulling on me. And all I had on at that point was a shirt. And I started um, panicking, going, no, 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 I'm okay. Put me down, please, please put me down. I'm okay, I'm gonna be okay. Please don't touch me. Because in my mind, he was gonna beat me and rape me. And I couldn't take getting beat up one more time. I'd been beat up my whole freaking life. It was like, leave me here in the canyon, but don't touch me and don't try to do anything to me. And I, you know what he, and then he's, he picked me up to his eyes. He was like this big African-American guy, like the guy in the green mile is my only way to describe it. He was huge. And I was like teeny and he was crying and he said, please, could you please let me help you? Please, please, please let me take you to a hospital. And um, when he started crying, something in me resonated that I could trust him because I never trusted anyone. Cause if I trust you and you help me, I owe you. And I never wanted to owe anyone, but um, he took me to a hospital. I paid for a cab back. And the cab said, where do you want to go? And I was like in a hospital gown barefoot um, with the slit up the back, which is undies on in that hospital gown. And I said, fifth and harbor, because I need to turn another trick to feel better about what just happened and to forget. And that's how it was for many years. Just forget, forget my kids gone, forget I've wrecked my life, forget I have nothing to live for. And um, then the next day I called my mom and she hung up on me and rightly so. I've done a lot of bad stuff to my mom. And then I called Tom, the guy in the wheelchair from Laguna Niguel. He'd been going out to the streets to talk to me. Tom was an abused kid that left home when he was 14, somewhere in the Midwest. And then he joined um, Vietnam for three hots in a cot. And he got shot with shrapnel and ended up in the wheelchair. And he used to call prostitutes so that he wouldn't be alone. And Tom used to search me out on Beach Boulevard and Harbor Boulevard and come and talk to me about like, Lori, you need to clean your life up. You need to go to school. I'm like, Tom, how can I go to school? Like, I got a kid. I don't have money for child support, you know, child care or anything like it's your life. It's not my life. Like I could never see it. And I called Tom that day and I said, Tom, I need help. And he said, Lori, I will take you wherever you want to go, but I'm not giving you one more dime. So I said, okay. And he picked me up and he took me to Casa del Cerro, which is a little detox in San Clemente that used to be there. And I went to that little place and they said, go in your room and rest. And we're going to have a group later on. And I hit, hit this room and it was all pretty and everything matched. And I was like, I hit the room and I closed the door and I'm like, you think I deserve a rest? Do you know what kind of person I am? Do you know what kind of mom I am? Like, I don't deserve a rest. If anything, I thought I deserve more punishment, right? And I didn't feel worthy of sitting on the pretty little bed. So I crashed on the floor and I just like knelt. And for the first time in a long time, I was like in a praying like position. I said, God, please help me. I don't know what help looks like. I don't know what help means, but if you could just be with me now. And then my head kicked in and said, really, Lori, you think God's listening to you? You know, you know how many deals you've made with God every time you were in jail, every time you thought you were dead, every time you thought you'd never see your kid again, God's not listening to you anymore. But that was January 6, 1987, the 
last time I ever drank or used, and there's nothing you could do to make God stop listening to you or, or loving you, right? But it took me a while to get that. So um, I stayed in that place for a week. I stayed at the Trix house for three weeks waiting for a scholarship bed because that was like rare, right? They finally opened up a bed at one of the treatment centers. I went there. I stayed there a year because I realized when I got there and I started talking about this stuff in my childhood for the first time in my life, it was the first place I ever really felt safe. And um, my daughter had to go into foster care during that year. And it was very difficult for me. But the foster mom said, if you get a year sober, I'll let, let you have her back. So I said, okay, I committed to a year in rehab. I talked about all the secrets from my childhood, which is truly the reason why I think I'm here right now. I got out a year later. Um, they told me to be honest on my job application at the rehab and get a job. I'm like, how's that going to work? Really, my honesty is never going to get me a job, right? So I lied and said I knew computer systems and I didn't. Like I couldn't even turn on the power button at the first few jobs. I got fired a lot, but I got hired a lot. I was really good at selling myself. <laughs> yeah. So um, I got a lot of jobs and um, and I just kept on getting more and more jobs and I kept on getting better at computer systems and I started reading books and um, I got my daughter back and we started a little meeting at my house. Um, I had my daughter had this little bunk bed in her room. It was like a two bedroom place. And I started the meeting. There was a men's group called Dog on the Roof and um, I didn't like them. So not to offend anyone that's associated, it's just my story. So I started a women's group called Pussy on the Porch to piss off Dog on the Roof. And um, that was every week and it was in the directory for a while, but then they pulled it. It's back in today as P-O-T-P and um, nobody knows what it means. But um, one night at the meeting, this lady came and she said, my name is Pam and I'm an addict. And I'd love to get the help you guys got, but I can't. Like my kid is 12. She's back at the crack house. She's at the Samoan crack house I was at. And the trick drove me to the meeting tonight. So how am I going to get sober, leave my kid at the, the crack house? But uh, it's nice that you guys got sobriety. And I remember at the end of the meeting, I went and talked to God. Um, and I said, um, you know, maybe I can help her. And yeah, so I felt like I could. And I told her, you know what, I'll watch your kid if you go get help. So she dropped her kid off the next day. She was 12. And um, the trick dropped her off. And I told her where there's a rehab, the trick could take her to. And her kid was like my karma. She stole from me. I tell her to stay home. She told me to F off. And it was like raising myself. I'm like, this is really cool, Lori. And I love that kid. And um, so, uh, yeah, after about a Two months, her mom stopped calling. I called over to the rehab and they said, no, she relapsed. She left here like three weeks ago. And I'm like, I got her kid. And they're like, we don't do kids. We do like sobriety, call social services. And I'm like, okay. So I call social services and they're like, you could drop her off over here at Orangewood. And I'm like, I can't drop a kid off. That's not what I do. What can I do? And they said, you can apply to be a foster mom. I'm like, cool. So I go through this whole rigmarole. They call me in. They're like, uh, receiving stolen goods, prostitution, assault and battery. No, no, not a foster mom. Um, but you can go get that kid and take her back. And you bring her back here because we can't approve you. But if you get seven years clean and sober, we can waive your record. So I went home and I was so traumatized. I call everyone on my pussy on the porch list. Some ladies like a paralegal. She said, if you get guardianship, then they can't take the kid. So I called a trick because I still have my skills from the street. And I'm like, it's your fault. You dropped this kid off here. You dropped the mom off there. The mom's gone. If you don't come and give me a check for $1,500 right now for guardianship, they're going to take the kid to foster care. So he said, don't ever call my number again. I don't want my wife knowing you exist or anyone else. So I'll come and drop the check and then you lose my number. So he came and dropped the check. And that was the first of my kids. Seven years later, abused kids are still coming into my life. And, um, my nephew gets taken by the system. My oldest sister never dealt with her sexual abuse, uh, was beating him just like my dad used to beat me. And he went into the system and I applied 
to be his foster mom. And when I went in to that same little room, I was terrified. They said, Lori, are you still sober? And I said, yeah. They said, when we tell someone seven years, they never come back. We're going to waive your record. So they make me a foster mom. And my sister um, finds out I got her kid and fights to get him back. And she never hit him again, thank God. But um, two days before Christmas, I get a call. Hey, is this Lori Burns? And I'm like, yeah. And she, the lady on the phone said, um, we've got you on the list as a foster mom. And um, we've got a 15-year-old that ran away from Vegas. And her, mo her mom left at birth and her dad's been molesting her. We're wondering if you still have an opening at your house. I'm like, you've got me on a flip and red list. Are you kidding me? I could pick up any kid anytime. It's not just for my nephew. That's when I realized, oh my God, I rushed over there and get that kid. And um, she was the first of my, my 46 foster kids. I have 46 foster kids, um, 22 grandkids. My own daughter um, wrote her personal story to Columbia University and got accepted to the social work program there and um, graduated with dual masters from Columbia. And I have the craziest, most beautiful life. And I realize now when I was a child that um, God didn't hate me. God loved me so much that he blessed me with this beautiful life because it's in the times when I get to pick up a kid that's in darkness and lead them out to the light that I know in every piece of my soul that I would do it all again, all the days being beat by my dad. The days in the mental institution being tied to the bed, the days on the street selling my ass so I can get right here, right now, which is the most beautiful life, the most beautiful kids and grandkids that I could ever freaking imagine. And where I hated God before, I absolutely love him for everything he's put me through. And um, I'm going to, I've got like three more minutes as far as this thing goes. Um, at, in 2007, I started waking up at three o'clock in the morning every night. It was crazy because I was at this time as an IT director at Northrop Grumman, which was a hike, you know. And waking up at three in the morning wasn't serving me. So I started, um, I had this little box. You guys said I could pray to anything as long as it wasn't me. And I was praying to George Burns because he was the only God I knew that I could pray to. Um, so I had this little box where I'd write notes to George, which is a book I'm working on right now. Um, my notes to George series. But, and I said, why am I waking up at three in the morning? And then an American Indian at a meeting told me, if you're waking up at three in the morning, it's because God's speaking to you. Some people call it the witching hours. Other people call it the spiritual hour, but when you wake up at 3 a.m., the universe is telling you something. So I started putting notes in, and what I found out is foster kids are going homeless everywhere on their 18th birthday. 65% of the foster kids were homeless at 18, and they were 60% of our nation's homeless population. Oh, I'm sorry, 40%, and 60% of the trafficking people in the U.S. So um, I started a little charity on legal zoom with my best friend and um let me just tell you it blew up <laughs> it blew up big time um i quit my job when someone read my book and donated the first million but today we have um 150 beds throughout southern california for girls that are homeless and sex trafficked and um we answer the phone all day every day we give them free detox free drug treatment free school whatever they want to be and we recreate their lives. And we, um, I realize now that God keeps on blessing me because he wanted me on this path. And I also realize, like, um, I have this analogy. My book that I'm writing right now is on saying yes to God, regardless of what my head says about you can't handle it. You got too much. It's over your head. You don't know what you're doing. I still say yes. And the more I say yes to God, the more things keep on happening. And I said, I said um, the other day, you know, like if I had a friend that really loved me and they said, Lori, I love you so much. 
I will do all your laundry. I will cook your dinner. I'll take care of your kids. I'll fix your car. I'll do everything you need me to do. I'd be like, chill the fridge out. Seriously. You could be my friend, but you don't need to do all that. Right. But what if I could see a light in her that got brighter and brighter and brighter every time she did something for me? then I might possibly let her continue to do it because I see the happiness glowing inside of her. Well, I think that's what God sees in us when we pay it forward to other people, when we start giving of what is the promises, the pain of our past and putting it forward to help others. As we glow, he keeps on blessing us and blessing us and blessing us. And um, I just want to say, if you're here and you don't believe in God, first of all, you could pray to anything and he's still going to pick up his mail. George Burns was still alive when I was praying to him. Um, second of all, know he believes in you and stay so you can see your life unfold. Thank you.